1: Tonight, we're going to finish last, last time's lecture two weeks ago um, about what it is the gospel accomplishes. I'm going to give you some different pictures of the gospel that are in uh, scripture, what it does, and then I'm going to take you through a gospel outline. Listen, there's a lot of different gospel outlines we could use. The one that I've done here is just one of many, um, but it's good for you to be able to uh, share the essence of the gospel in 30 seconds, a minute, five minutes, half an hour, an hour. I mean, it can be all of the above. Uh, It really is that uh, amazing a message, but I've, I've given you um, a sheet that begins with page 10. We're in the middle of this doctrinal instruction, on what the Bible, what the, what the gospel does. I'd like to begin with that. Uh, We're talking about the different accomplishments of the gospel Uh, that we are saved from sin's penalty, saved from sin's power and saved thirdly from sin's practice. That's where we are. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. What are we being saved from? Well, we're being saved from sin and everything it does to you. Isn't that amazing? It's a comprehensive salvation. Sin does a lot of things in this world. Sin does a lot of things in your life. As a matter of fact, I think it would be an incredible thing if you could live one hour without feeling any effects of sin whatsoever. I think you would not even believe the effect on your body, on your emotions, on your mind, on the world around you. I mean, I think if you could just be one hour, it'd be like heaven on earth. It'd be an incredible thing. Sin is such an oppressive presence. We don't have any idea all the things that it does to us. And uh, that's what Jesus came to do is to save us from sin in everything. It's a comprehensive salvation that we're looking at. So we're going to be saved. We are saved. The gospel saves us from sin's power. Um, we talked about that. Basically sin has no authority over the Christian sin has no power to compel you any longer. It has no rights over you. You've been rescued or transferred from the dominion of darkness into the dominion of Christ. And, uh, that's a beautiful thing. And so therefore, just like uh, if you change your citizenship from another country to the U.S., the previous country cannot call you into military service, has no authority over you, etc. That's the idea that we are no longer under sin, but we're under grace. It's like you're in a new country now. You were in sin and now you're in grace. All right. That doesn't mean that you don't carry with you some of the ethics and the habit patterns and the old ways from the old world. In other words, you can be in Christ's kingdom and still act as though you weren't. Isn't that sad? Uh, But at any rate, that's true. You can be transferred over into the kingdom of Christ and forget that you've been transferred and you don't act the right way. But that's a rescue from sin, sin's power. And the second thing we talked about or penalty, uh, sin's power. The third thing is from sin's practice on page 10. There is still a power of sin in our bodies. That's the first blank there on page 10. There's a power of sin stored up in our bodies in that they have been trained to sin through years of experience. Your body is trained to sin. And by that, I also mean your mind, especially. You are trained to react in certain situations. React with impatience or selfishness or anger or frustration. Any one of a number of sinful responses. You have trained yourself. I have trained myself in how to do it. And uh, other people have trained us. Our parents trained us how to sin. Isn't that sad? I'm training my children on how to sin. They'll tell you. All right. I'm also training them how not to sin. All right. And it's quite a battle all the time. I'm training them how to sin by my example. I never sit down and say, now, if you want to sin, this is how you do it right. Okay. This is what we're going to do to sin. Okay. We're going to have sin lessons. I never do that. I don't. I'm actually instructing the opposite, but my life is teaching by example, sadly, how to sin. So we are being trained to sin all the time. Your bodies are trained in sin. The This power of sin is that of habit. And it is excited by ex- or incited by external temptations by the devil and by the body's own weakness. The, uh, this is the next step of salvation. It's saved from sin's practice. The Bible tell, uh, calls this gradual growth into daily Christ-like uh, holiness, sanctification. Now you may, you may ask, why do I need to know this in order to be an evangelist? Well, if you don't understand salvation, you're not going to be able to share the gospel effectively. You know, if somebody prays the prayer... And then the next day they say, well, I thought I was done with sin. You know, it doesn't work like that. You have to have an understanding of what the Christian life is, of what the gospel does, how it works. If you don't understand sanctification, you're not going to be able uh, to lead somebody to Christ effectively. You have to be able to tell them what they can expect. What what kind of life are they going to live? Uh, And so we have to understand this sanctification. We have been taught. uh, Sorry, we have to be taught step by step to live in the freedom from sin that Christ purchased for us. The grace of God is that teacher working a gradual crushing of the habits and practices of sin over the lifetime of the believer. Titus 2:11 and 12 is a very strong verse in this for the grace of God. That brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self controlled upright and godly lives in this present age. Do you see that the grace of God is a teacher. That's what Titus 2:11 and 12 is saying. What is it teaching? What does the grace of God teach? Just to turn away from the world. Yeah. How to turn away, to deny or say no to ungodliness. It's a teacher. And so we should never imagine that grace is some weak thing. Grace is very powerful. Grace is a, is a sovereign power in your life. Uh, it says in Romans, just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh that's just Romans for you. I mean so many little sub phrases. That's why people preach forever in Romans, like me. By the way, I counted up. I'm coming up on my one hundredth sermon in Romans. I'm very excited. We're gonna hit triple digits. We're gonna have like a hundred birthday party or something like that. I don't know. Probably we won't. But you know we're coming to hundred. It's so packed. But what it's saying is sin used to reign. Sin was a king in your life, a tyrannical power. Now grace is a sovereign power in your life. And it teaches you to say no to ungodliness. We say no to sin by the power of the Holy Spirit, putting sin to death every time we refuse a temptation. This is precisely the work the indwelling spirit does for every believer. Romans 8, 13 and 14. If by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live because those who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. And by the way, those that are led by the spirit of God to put sin to death, are the sons of God, children of God. If you're not being led by the spirit to put sin to death, you're not a child of God. That's what it's teaching. So you need, you need to say that when somebody gets done praying the sinner's prayer, uh, what you need to do is, is not give them assurance that they are now saved. Say, if the Lord has saved you, he's going to be working by his spirit in you to put sin to death. You're going to start seeing a principle of holiness in your life growing. Jonathan Edwards called that internal principle of, of holiness, the greatest evidence of God's saving work. It, and I think it is uh, that there is this transforming power of holiness inside the heart of the person. It's a new principle of holiness. That's going to be how uh, we know not that they were water baptized. They pray the sinner's prayer, water baptized, lots of people that happens to, and they're not really saved. Uh, they'll tell you that. They say, well, I was baptized a couple of years ago, but it didn't really take, <laughs> you know, <laughs> kind of like an adhesive that doesn't stick well to like Teflon or something. I don't know what it is. Well, let me say, when when God works in you, he's working a work of holiness inside the heart. So that's what he's doing. Now, this work, sanctification, is a partnership, partnership between the spirit and the believer. And it goes on for the rest of your life. We can still fail and lurch into sin where we have no business being and where we do not belong. Uh, When we do it, the spirit convicts us of his revulsion against it. We confess it and repent from it and walk again as new creatures in Christ. However, anyone who is not regularly putting sin to death by the Holy Spirit is not a Christian, as we just said a moment ago. And now, fourthly, we are saved from sin's presence. We will be. That's in the future. It means there won't be any sin around. None. I just mentioned that again. Wouldn't it be nice to have an hour of that? Well, you won't just have an hour. You'll have eternity of that. I just talked, pre- preached about that on Sunday. Isn't that exciting? You have an eternity of Apart from sin's presence, that's the future. This is the final step of our salvation. The Bible calls it glorification. It involves a total freedom from the very presence of sin in heaven. No more indwelling sin nature. No more body of death, Romans 7, 24, in which resides our proclivity to sin. No more external temptations. No more devil. What glorious freedom. It also includes a resurrection body, perfect in every respect. Now, here's the thing. If God didn't do this in us, do you realize we really wouldn't be able to enjoy heaven? I mean, think about that. We are easily bored right now. We, we get tired of things. We don't have a taste for God the way we should. An eternity of anything in our present state would actually wear on us. We have to be transformed in order to enjoy heaven. Isn't that true? Now, we can, in our new creation selves now, we can see that heaven would be enjoyable, enjoyable, theoretically, but you couldn't pull it off. We have to be transformed inside and out in order really to enjoy heaven. And God intends to do that for us. Isn't that wonderful? He intends to finish the work in us. It's called glorification. Susan. I believe that sanctification is a subset of glorification. It's this side of it. Now, most theologians don't use it that way. But the reason I speak that way is that the word sanctification or sanctified isn't even mentioned in Romans chapter 8. There it says, those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified you don't even see sanctification mentioned there so therefore what i think is is that sanctification is a kind of glorification uh, another support for that is in 2 corinthians chapter three where it says we're being transformed from glory into glory so we're glorious now we're just not glorious enough <laughs> okay so we're going to be made ever more glorious ever increasing glory So I believe that glorification is the work going on in my life now and yours. But I will tell you, most theologians don't use the word that way. They talk about this phase as sanctification and then the next phase is glorification. But I think there's good reason for thinking of sanctification as a subset of glorification. So that's kind of what's going on in us right now. We're being transformed from glory into glory, becoming ever more glorious. Okay. All right, it involves, glorification, uh, in, in the way they usually speak, uh, involves an instantaneous transformation, the moment we see Christ face-to-face, transformation. And it is accomplished completely by the power of God and by his grace. And isn't it so appropriate? I mean, we sovereignty of God people have been saying that the gospel is all of God's grace and his power anyway. Boy, will you see it at, at, at uh, glorification. You're going to say, okay, here I am, dead now, Okay, kind of a rotting corpse, and I'm separated from my rotting corpse, and whoosh, instantly perfect in in soul and spirit, and then the resurrection body joins us whenever the Lord, you know, ends the world. And isn't that going to be so clearly by God's power? Isn't that His work? What can we do to glorify ourselves? It's something He will do. So that's that's an amazing thing. We're looking forward to that. All right, Romans 8. Hey, look at it's right there on the page. I just quoted it a second ago, but it's right there on the page. So at any rate, there's the whole the whole thing. Those he glorified. 1 Corinthians 15:51 uh, and following. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. Let me tell you something. If you meditate on that, meditate on that, you will see the purpose and the wisdom of God in the laborious process of sanctification. Ask yourself, could God finish the sanctification work in you in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye? Could he do that today? Absolutely. The the verse says he could. Boom, and you're done. Why doesn't he then? It's not his purpose. He wants you to slog it out. (laughs) He wants you to struggle and fight and, and confess sin and be here in this world. And he just wants that. And you might ask why. I don't know ultimately. It's just his purpose. All I'm saying is the same thing with financial troubles. God could turn the stones around you into diamonds if you wanted to. He can do anything. If he chooses not to, it's because he is deciding this for you. He has decided a laborious, slow process of sanctification for you now. That you struggle now. And, uh, and he will decide not to do that anymore when you're glorified. Boom. Just like that. Yes.
0: They may confess certain habits, uh, very simple. And uh, are we justified in ever saying to them, the Lord may choose to remove this from Oh, you, sure. Or let them know it isn't all yeah. slogging it out. The Lord yeah. may miraculously deliver
1: it. He does that. There's testimony from that, a, a testimony of that from, from people that, that certain habits just disappeared and they never came back again. Although I do say if any man thinks he's stand, take heed lest he fall. You know, you could have a, a sin habit or pattern taken from you and then find 10 years later you're back at it again. And, and so my feeling is you've got to be constantly vigilant while in this world. So I think, yes, I mean, God can do that. But it's not his normal way. You know, um, you know it's the same thing with those that are always um, kind of uh, rebuking the, the demon of impatience, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, you know, it's not the demon of impatience. It's you, you're being impatient. You know, that's, that's the issue. But people try to find named demons for each sin pattern. And, and my feeling is the Lord just wants you to put sin to death by the spirit. He's given you all the equipment you need to be holy. And so that's what he's doing. But we have something to look forward to in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, we will be changed. And then again, it says in first, John three, uh, verse two, dear friends. Now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. Did you see that? There's some mystery involved here. There's some things he hasn't fully told us yet. That's exciting, isn't it? You know, it's kind of like your birthday's coming up and your spouse says, I have a surprise for you. What is it? I'm not telling you. Uh, Christy tells me she doesn't like that. It makes her feel, what do you you feel when I tell you I have a surprise? It stresses you out, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Makes her feel stressful. Like, did I spend too much money on it or something like that? I don't know. Or will will she like it? well, I don't know what this means. What we will be has not yet been made known. But we know, there is something we do know. When he appears, we shall be like him. Do you see the consistency here between Romans 8 and 1 John 3? That we would be conformed to the, to the son, that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And here, 1 John 3, 2, we will be like him. Do you see how it goes all the way back to original Genesis 1 that we are created in the image of God? There's such a consistency to what God's doing here. He made us in his image. Sin defaces that image. He's restoring us uh, in his image, the image of his son. It's so so consistent. Do you see it? I mean, you can't write this. No human being can figure this out. There's a consistency across the whole Bible. He is reclaiming and working that his image would be perfected in us. So that's the future. All right. Our gospel message then is the wonderful news that full salvation from sin and all of its devastating consequences is available through faith in Christ. The penalty of sin, the power of sin, the practice of sin, and the presence of sin, all of them will be done away with by the work of Christ. All of them removed through faith in Christ. All right. We understand that these things are accomplished for us only by Jesus Christ. They are won for us uh, through his victory at the cross. In order to understand the gospel, we must understand the full achievement achievement of Christ on the cross the accomplishments of the cross are so immense and sweeping that the Bible actually uses a wide variety of language to cover them. Now, turn the page, there's a little chart there. I got this from my uh, systematic theology professor, Roger Nicole, um, in which he talks about the varieties of language uh, concerning what Jesus accomplished at the cross. Basically, uh, what Jesus did at the cross is so amazing, so comprehensive, so sweeping, that no one type of language covers it all. Therefore, the Bible uses a variety of language um, to uh, talk about what Jesus did at the cross. Take the chart, and on the left-hand side, you see the types of language. For example, there is relationship language uh, with the cross. There is sacrifice language. There is the courtroom picture or language. There's the marketplace, and then there's battlefield. Do you see that? So there are five different kinds of language. For example, relationship, the key terms there would be reconciliation and also propitiation. Uh, reconciliation is basically two estranged parties who are brought back into a good relationship with each other. Again, you know, you get second Corinthians five 21, uh, God says, um, second Corinthians five 21, um, it says, uh, that God himself were making as though God himself were making his appeal through us. We implore you on God's behalf, be reconciled to God. So you see, God is there through the evangelist imploring this sinner, be reconciled to God. Come again now into a good relationship with God. That's what the reconciliation language is is like. Uh, Propitiation is the turning away of the wrath of God by the payment of a blood sacrifice. So basically, the wrath of God is removed. It's no longer a hindrance in the relationship. Very hard to have a good relationship with God when he's being wrathful toward you. All right, obviously it's impossible. The relationship is broken. So the wrath must be removed. Therefore, this is relationship language. Uh, Reconciliation, propitiation are both relationship type things. The obstacles for God and us in this, that we are enemies. We are enemies in our minds because of our evil behavior. Colossians says, we were, if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. We were enemies. That's an obstacle. All right. And um, he was our enemy as well. Uh, And the wrath of God is a big obstacle. Key verses, as I already uh, cited, 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through uh, 21. Romans 3, 25 is the propitiation verse. And Romans 5, 9 through 11. And what is the outcome of the cross relationally? Friendship with God. Isn't that wonderful? We are friends with God. We are his friends. Um, All right, that's relationship. Secondly, you have sacrifice. Now, later in this evangelism course, I'm going to talk about how to use the sacrificial system to share the gospel. But sacrifice is one of the number one ways that God has communicated the cross to us across time. I mean, from the very beginning, when he uh, uh, covered Adam and Eve with the skins of an animal to the next step, when uh, Abel offered God a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice that God accepted. But Cain's uh, vegetable sacrifice was not acceptable to God. God was establishing the principle of blood sacrifice. Noah steps off the ark and he offers a sacrifice of the clean animals, the extra clean animals that he had taken on the ark. He took seven clean animals and then two of every kind of the unclean animals. Uh, well, he offers a sacrifice to God and God smells the pleasing aroma and, swe- and swears never again to bring a flood like this on the, on the earth in history. So there's this issue of sacrifice and blood. Uh, the obstacle for God and us, the blemishes on the sacrifice representing wickedness and sin, and God's standards um, are obstacles concerning this matter of sacrifice. Uh, Therefore, we must have a lamb without blemish, holy and blameless. Do you see then why God himself must provide the sacrifice? There's nothing we have that's good enough. Nothing we have. One of the elements of using the sacrificial system to witness is one of the key ideas is that animals cannot be the substitute because there's nothing good enough for God. God must provide his own lamb. Remember what Abraham said on Mount, Mount Moriah. Remember Isaac asked the question, the question of the Old Testament, Remember, what is the question of the Old Testament uttered by little Isaac en route? Where is the lamb? lamb? That is the question of the Old Testament. Where is the lamb? It can't be an animal. The blood of bulls and goats never satisfies for human sin. It's just symbolic. You understand that? Where is the lamb? John the Baptist answered the question. What is the question? Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God alone must supply the lamb because the lamb has to be holy and blameless. The lamb has to be perfect, and, and nothing we touch is perfect. So, key verses first Peter 1 18 and 19, Hebrews 7 27, uh, Matthew 26 28, blood of the new covenant, etc. The outcome of the sacrificial, uh, the sacrifice of Christ is the sacrifice is accepted and sins are purged. All right, then there's the courtroom language. This is very familiar to us, Romans uses a lot. It's the idea of a judge and some laws and a criminal. And penalties paid, you know, that's a picture and we are very familiar with this. I'm just telling you, this is not the only picture of what Christ accomplished. There's more than, more than one realm of language here. So here you get language like justification, justice, judgment, and penalty. These things are all languages appropriate to the cross. Uh, The obstacle is the law of God. The law of God stood against us, it says in Colossians and was opposed to it to us Uh, there were infractions of the law it was our enemy to at one level though there was nothing wrong with the law obviously our sin is an obstacle for God and us the record of our sin God's justice was an obstacle apart from Christ isn't that amazing one of the achievements of the cross is to turn God's justice from our most terrifying foe to our greatest ally Isn't that incredible that God's justice apart from the cross of Christ is a terrifying foe because God is so just, he will not let sinners like us in heaven without our sins atoned for. But then in 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And so somehow the justice of God doesn't stand against us to condemn us anymore. Now the justice of God is in our favor to forgive us. Why? Because Jesus died on the cross. You see that? It is now just for God to forgive us in Christ. So the justice of God and God's righteousness was an enemy. Now it's our friend. Um, the outcome is we're declared not guilty. Criminals are made righteous. And yet also with that, the law is uphold, upheld. Uh, so that's marvelous. So courtroom. And then there's marketplace. Uh, the idea of a marketplace is uh, of, of a payment paid, a purchase made, etc. cetera. Um, the idea here, the language is redemption, for example. Redemption is the uh, buying of a slave out of slavery by the payment of a price. Redemption is that language. Or ransom. Another is ransom. Uh, Jesus said the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's an idea of the payment of a price and uh, purchase also. Uh, What's the obstacle for us? Well, the price is too high to pay. I mean, how could you ever pay for your own sin? Uh, You can't buy yourself out of slavery. You don't have enough. So it's too high to pay. Key verses are listed there. And the outcome of the cross is the price is paid. The captive is rescued and possession of the uh, uh, the slave is obtained. You know, it says in uh, 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Isn't that nice to know you're not your own? You're owned by somebody else. Somebody bought you. It's Jesus. He owns you. And that makes sense because he made you. <laughs> so it's fine that he owns you, but he paid a price. Again, do you see this whole marketplace uh, kind of approach, the idea of the payment of a price? That's in there as well. And then finally, there's the battlefield picture, the idea of a great victory won, right? A battle was fought and Christ was uh, the victor. Uh, the idea here is a victory uh, or a rescue. Satan was too powerful and death was undefeatable for us, but uh, Christ won the victory. Uh, it says... Uh, In Hebrews 2, that he uh, destroyed, Christ destroyed him who held the power of death, that is the devil, and freed those who are, all their lives are held in slavery by their fear of death. Isn't that that a beautiful picture? Uh, Christ the victor. You know how it says in Luke, uh, when a strong man fully armed uh, is standing in front of his house, all of his possessions are safe. But... When someone stronger than him overpowers him and takes away the armor in which he trusted, he is able then to plunder the man's house. Jesus taught this. But what's Jesus talking about? Who's the strong man in Jesus' analogy? Satan is the strong man and the possessions are us. And the armor in which he trusted is his satanic, wicked power that we did not have enough power to overcome. But Jesus came and conquered him and rescued us from his evil, dark dominion. Wow, you say, wow, a lot happened at the cross. Yes, it did. Each of these themes you could meditate on forever. Uh, This is the fullness of all that Jesus accomplished at the cross. So you're sitting on an airplane. You have about 14 minutes until the plane lands. Which of these analogies are you going to use? How are you going to reach out with the gospel at this point? It's so rich. Um, that's a problem. So what I'd like to do now, um, let's just stop here with uh, the practical uh, stuff. We'll get back to that. But I'd like to look at the gospel outline now. And I want to give you a sense of a quick way to think about the, uh, the gospel itself. Take your yellow sheet. I, I think there are still some yellow ones out there. You may, it may be white, but it says gospel outline on it right here. Okay. The yellow sheet. Gospel outline. Basically, all I try to do with this is to summarize the main ideas of those things that we're going to try to um, try to communicate. There are four main headings to the gospel outline. Can you tell me what they are? What are the four main headings? God, man, Christ, response. God, man, Christ, response. Okay, everyone, repeat after me. God, man, Christ, response. Those are headings of information you're going to communicate. You're going to say some things about God. You're going to say some things about man, about the human race. You're going to say some things about Christ, and you're going to call for a response. That is the gospel, depending on what you say in each of those things. All right. Obviously, if you add circumcision as a requirement, you are preaching no gospel at all. Let you be forever eternally condemned. Paul said at Galatians 1. All right. But you have to say the right things about God, man, Christ response. Okay. We'll try to figure out what that is. But We'll start with God. Now, later on, not tonight, but later on, I'm going to make a case of why we must begin with God. Not every gospel presentation begins with God. I mean, you've seen tracks and all that. Where do most, actually most gospel presentations, where do they usually start? Man, and specifically in what way? Man's sin, man's problems, and all that. Uh, For example, have you heard about the the Southern Baptist, the faith, F-A-I-T-H? What's F, Ron? You know what? You you did the faith thing, didn't you? Isn't it forgiveness? It starts with forgiveness. Forgiveness, uh, I forget, F-A-I-T-H. It's an acronym. I'll tell you this about acronyms. They almost always force you away from the best possible outline. Uh, You you know, you got to be careful about acronyms. But what an interesting gospel presentation that begins, that begins with forgiveness. Do you see a logical problem there? I mean, you're just trying to witness to somebody, to an unbeliever, you're just talking to them and say, I'd like to talk to you about forgiveness with God. (laughs) Why do they need it? Yeah, forgiveness from what? I'm fine. You know, I, yeah, I offended somebody a week ago, but we made it right. I think. Anyway, I mean, the, to start with forgiveness, it's a problem because they don't know what they need to be forgiven from. All right. The if is for, for, forgetting, all I take. forgetting all I take him. Well, that's another that acronym. I wonder how many acronyms there are for faith. All right. I had, forgetting all I take him. All right. That's but that's at the end because we need to know who the him is. And the all that we're forgetting. So but I like that one. That's good. Remember it. Forgetting all. I take him. Uh, f- faith is just another acronym. Forgiveness. Uh, atone- I don't think A is atonement. I don't remember. You don't even remember, on, do you? I don't either. I've been through the training. Shows what happens with these things. I is impossible. T is turn. And H is some other thing. Anyway, um, I think it's better to start with God. You know why? Where does the Bible start? Now, you all know Genesis 1-1. Anyone able to tell me what Genesis 1-1 says? In the beginning, God. So I I think it's a good place to start, don't you? I I, I think so. So let's start with God. What do we want to say about God? Well, let's start with the very beginning of what it says about God at the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So I think we should start with God the creator. Why should we start there? Well, I think we should start there because it's universally applicable. You can use it with internationals. You can use it with Americans. You can use it with people who know know the Bible pretty well, and you can use it with those who don't know anything about it. All right, we ought to start with God the creator. It's really quite remarkable how many of the, of the books of the Bible start with God the creator. Genesis starts with God the creator. John, the gospel of John starts with God the creator. Uh, the book of Hebrews starts with God the creator. Uh, the book of Colossians, God the creator. Uh, these, are, these are important uh, books that uh, start there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All right, because God is, crea- uh, is creator, we can see that he's loving Because he's created. Now, what's the connection between God's creation and his love? That's right. Creation itself is an expression of God's loving nature, isn't it? God has a desire to communicate himself. He has a desire to be in a relationship. Uh, Acts 14, 17 is a great verse for this. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Now, what, are the, what does that verse talk about? Look at Acts 14:17. This This is not the Romans Road. I hope you notice that. We're not just doing the Romans Road. I'm, I'm trying to put a logical presentation of the Gospel together. What does Acts 14:17 teach you about God? God provides for okay, hang on a second.
0: God provides for His creation.
1: He provides for His creation. Well, so go ahead. There's everybody. Everybody on the face of the earth has experienced God's kindness at some level. And and, and in what kind of ways is it mentioning here in Acts 14:17? Rain. Rain and crops and fills your hearts with joy. Right? Those are just things He does. And so we start with that. The, just the goodness of God. God is Creator, and therefore we see that God is loving. Secondly, God is King. Yeah, go ahead, Lori. I don't think you are talking about yeah. That. Sorry.
0: Stops you right there and says, I don't really think
1: that God all this. We know that evolution is, you know like what if you get derailed right from the start? Yeah, you know the thing is uh, early on I thought that 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 was a derailing and now I don't look at it that way. Now I think we need to give a good account for creation. I know that it's possible to spend the next four years and they never they never come to that point. So understand we are proclaiming the gospel. We are preaching the gospel, okay? Uh, so basically, you could imagine um, like uh, a messenger, a herald from a king unrolling a scroll and reading what the king said to say, you know what I'm saying? So whether they believe it or not, God created the heavens and the earth and the word of God has power. You need to rest on that. So whether they are convinced uh, by your presentation about evolution or not, God still made the heavens and the earth. And I actually tell people, I've told people this many times before. I share scripture because scripture has converting power. I share Genesis 1.1. I've got it memorized. You just say it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. My guess is you have it memorized too. So just say it. Well, you say, you know, the Bible says in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. They might scoff. They might mock. They might laugh. But then they might not be able to sleep that night. And I actually have told them, I say, I pray that you will not be able to get to sleep tonight as you think about God, the creator. All right. Or or think about this or that. And I have prayed that. And I don't know how many people had any sleepless nights as a result of my praying. All right? But I, you know, trust in the converting power of the word of God. Also realize this. If they do not believe from scripture, they will not believe at all. They just won't. So if they cannot believe the, the Bible and its authority to speak to these spiritual matters, they will not believe anything you say. So. Um, at any rate, we can talk another time about, there's some basic problems with evolution and you can just say, look, you know, you got your fossil record. Where did the first cell come from and irreducible complexity? We can talk about those other times. I want to get into that. There are problems with evolution. Uh, and I, I like to talk about it. say, where did the first cell come from? The first living thing, you know, like a moment before nothing's alive anywhere on the earth. And now suddenly you have the first living cell. How did that happen? No one can give an answer. No one. I don't care how smart they are. Nobody has an answer. Uh, yes, Ron.
0: Josh McDowell made a, a comment that he said that he really, that he's not really met anybody who thinks has real intellectual arguments, most of moral or intellectual arguments to uh, be uh, a bridge against or a front yeah. against moral problems that they all each have. That's true. And um, I've been asked that question a lot.
1: Yeah, that's true. And, and let me pick up on something what Ron said. People have moral arguments or problems with, with um, Christianity. Uh, they think they're going to have to change their life. Well, you know what? They are, okay? They're right. And yet, I have seen people go from putting up all these smoke screens to actually crying and wanting Christ at the end of the time. And they're not even talking anymore about evolution anymore. It was, just a, it was a smoke screen. They don't want to talk that much about it. But they don't necessarily believe the gospel at the beginning but at the end they think there actually is a possibility that God could forgive them that they could be accepted through Christ and they're not talking at the end of the encounter anymore about evidence for evolution they really aren't so but I do think I do believe that we need to have in our hearts a reason or an answer to give let me keep going if I might okay um, the second connection is not only God is God creator God is king uh psalm 47 7 is just one of many verses i could have chosen for this but we won't with this one because it's succinct for god is the king of all the earth sing to him a psalm of praise now what is the connection between god is creator god is king do you see a connection between the two he He made it he owns it It it's that simple he made it it's his to do what he wants with it right it's his so it makes sense that he would be king all right he is king And therefore, God is sovereign. That means he exerts his kingly rule. He hasn't pulled back. He hasn't tossed it off and let it go. And now is doing something else in some other parallel universe. He is ruling this universe. Psalm 103, 19, it says, The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Now, because God is sovereign, he makes laws by which his world is governed. Doesn't that make sense? The king makes laws. And an example of that is the Ten Commandments. Um, I think that you should memorize this outline of the Ten Commandments. Do you see it? Um, This is not the full verbiage of Exodus uh, chapter 20. It's not the full verbiage of Deuteronomy chapter 5. That's not what I'm saying. But this is a good summary of it. And by the way, it's okay to give summaries. Look at Romans chapter 13. uh, And there, Paul in verse 8 and 9, he quickly summarizes some of the 10 commandments and says, and whatever other commandments there may be are summed up in this one law, love your neighbor as yourself. So it's okay to summarize the 10 commandments, but you should know all 10 of the 10 commandments. And you might say, well, you t- I mean, I've been a Christian for years. Do you know all 10 of the 10 commandments? Just turn it over. Just write them out. See, see if you do. Actually, I didn't until I memorized them for a catechism I was doing with my kids. And I had been in the ministry for a while. I was ashamed that I couldn't list all 10 of the 10 commandments but you should be able to list them and you should be able to go through them and you should understand the force of them. Like for example, look at uh, number six, you shall not murder. And look what I added. Do you see what I added there? And anger is the root of murder. Why did I add that? Jesus taught that in the Sermon on the Mount. Is Jesus's opinion on the 10 commandments relevant to your soul and mine? Is it? Why is Jesus' opinion on the Ten Commandments relevant to you, Jim? He's the judge. He'll be sitting on your case. So therefore, it's nice to know what the judge thinks about the law that's relevant to your case. You see what I'm saying? And so I think it's beneficial in witnessing to say, you shall not murder. Well, I haven't murdered. Yes, but Jesus said that if you're angry with your brother, you're in danger of the fire of hell. Didn't Jesus say that? And isn't it relevant to their case? Don't you think you should tell them? Do you think they've ever been angry with someone? Do you think maybe earlier that day they were angry with someone? And then it says you shall not commit adultery and lust is the root of adultery. Jesus taught that, right? Uh, Again, Sermon on the Mount. Why are we bringing people through the law? Why? Why do you actually bring people through some of the commandments of God? Why? They will not call out for Christ unless they see their sin. Okay. in a minute, in the in the man section, you're going to say all have what sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I'm telling you, without the law, they won't know what their sin is. uh, The law comes to expose sin and to make it obvious. Another one you really want to talk about is number 10. You shall not covet anything. You shall not covet anything. Why is that one particularly poignant? Think about it. What is coveting? yearning for something, wanting for something. Didn't the apostle Paul pick up on this in Romans seven? He talks about coveting. There's something special about that command. What is it? Say again. Everybody does it. Everybody does it. Everybody yearns for or wants something they don't have. They've been doing it since they were little, little kids and and their brother got the bigger donut. You know, who knows what it's, it's just coveting is so part of our, of our sinful, our sinful lives. All right. That's the 10 commandments. We should also give them the two, the two great commandments. Do you know what they are? The first and greatest commandment is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what is the difference, do you notice, between the Ten Commandments and the Two Commandments? There is a difference. The two greatest commandments or something that you must do, it's all stated positively. Positively. Yeah, if you look at the Ten Commandments, you shall have no, you shall not, you shall not. Then there's keep the Sabbath day holy, honor your father and mother. But then there's you shall not, shall not, shall not, shall not, and shall not. Do you see that? But the two great commandments are you shall. We're stuck. You take the Ten Commandments and you take the two commandments and there is nowhere left to hide. Nowhere. And you can do enough work with the 10 plus the two so that anyone you talk to will be made to feel guilty for their sin. If you know how to handle the law, you are able to bring them to a point of conviction with the leadership of the spirit. The 10 plus the two is enough to do the job. You see what I'm saying? Because the two commandments are positive and cover every moment of your life. You know, have you really loved God with all of your heart? Have you really loved your neighbor as yourself? Okay. 10 commandments, two commandments. By the way, we don't, we don't uh, apply it to their lives at this point. We're just saying the rules that the creator king made for his universe. He gave us these laws. Is that, aren't they wonderful? Aren't they good laws? I think they're good laws, don't you? Psalmist thought they were wonderful. He wrote a whole 178 verse Psalm about them. Oh, how I love your law. They're great laws. They're wonderful laws. There's nothing wrong with these laws, is there? Would you change anything in here? Now you know you wouldn't. right? right, you're a Christian. Why would I change anything? In it is a, these are wonderful laws. So you are in the God section. You are presenting the laws positively saying these are wonderful laws to live by, aren't they? We'll get to it in a minute and how well they've done. Okay. But that's it. God is creator. God is king. And then God is judge. Do you see that? Now, how does it follow from creator to king to judge? Do you see the connection? What's the connection between creator, king, judge? King That implies That it's
0: a code or a standard he wants you to live up to, and then that pretty much says there's gonna have to be some consequences if you don't.
1: That's right. Because everybody knows if you don't have any consequences, nobody everybody ignores the code. Yeah, I mean if you have a king that gives out laws but there's no judicial system or prisons or courts, so what? <laughs> people like they won't read the laws, what do they care? Right? I mean you've got to have enforcement. God intends to enforce every one of his commands over every one of his created people. He intends all of them to be kept. So therefore, every infraction, every small infraction of each of God's commandments will be dealt with either in hell or at the cross. That's a a stunning thought, isn't it? Every single one will be dealt with. Nothing will be missed. So every single one of your sins and mine, uh, if we're Christians, every one will be dealt with at the cross. Every one who's not a Christian is dealt with in hell. That's the way God is. He deals with it. He is the judge. Uh, Psalm 96, 13. The Lord comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Uh, therefore, God is holy. Habakkuk 1, 13. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. All right. We have said all these things about God. Do you see it? God is creator. God is king. God is judge. All right. Next section. Man. What are we going to say about, uh, about man? Well, I tried to link it to each of the things we just learned about God. Creator, king, judge. We are created under the king and going to be judged for our sin. Do you see it? That's, that's basically this, uh, the uh, order. Uh, man is created by God the creator, Genesis 1:27. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female. He created them. He created to be like God, to know and love God, and to serve God. The problem is that we are rebellious against God the king. Uh, this is where we get to the problem of sin. We are universally rebellious. I prefer Romans 3:10 through 12 to Romans 3:23. Romans 3:23 is good for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. You can talk about that. Romans 3:10 through 12 seems a little bit more pointed. If you look at it, it says there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Is that of any use to you as an evangelist to know that Romans 3.12 says there is no one who does good, not even one? Ron, how is that beneficial as an evangelist? You've shared the gospel with people. How is Romans 3.12, there is no one who does good, not even one, how is that beneficial? That's right. Most of the people you witness to who are non-Christians and who at the end of your encounter with them are still non-Christians will be so because they think too highly of themselves. They will think that they are, and I quote, basically a good person, end quote. Yeah, all man's ways seem bright in his own eyes. Yeah. Oh, yes, yes. There is no one righteous, not even one, including the one who's witnessing here. And you know, we're, not, we're not standing over and saying, ah, you sinner, you know, that's not it. Uh, we are not uh, that way at all. Um, we we uh, feel the weight of being that way, but universally rebellious. So I think this is useful. Rebellious against God's laws. All sin is lawlessness is in 1 John. Now it's time to go back to the 10 plus the two. Say, what about you? Uh, we've talked about the 10 commandments. Do you keep the 10 commandments? Ask them. Do you keep the Ten Commandments? Do you feel that, that you do? And what if they say, mostly? <laughs> what would you say at that point? If somebody said, well, yeah, most most of the time, most of them. What? Okay, if you've broken one, you've broken them all. What would you say to somebody who says that they mostly keep the Ten Commandments?
0: I didn't um, assault, you know, this other person.
1: Or embezzle. No, or, or rape. That's or no lie reason. under yes. sworn, you know. Yeah. I mean, my goodness, you could be there all day long
0: telling him what,
1: you, what did. you didn't do. I know. <laughs> but
0: you did. If you did do one thing,
1: then you are guilty Yeah. Yeah, the, the judge would throw all that out as irrelevant. They, they want to know this. What's amazing to me is how people think that they can use um, their good things or the, the, the sins they haven't committed to pay for those uh, laws that they've broken. It doesn't make any sense. But I'm just saying you have to lovingly and humbly take the Ten and the Two Commandments and apply them to their lives. Actually, take, give them to them and say, you apply them. You apply them. You know? Have you been angry? Have you been lustful? Have you been covetous? Have you loved God ever, with all of your strength and mind? Have you loved your neighbors yourself? And at some point, they're going to say something like, well, nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. And when they do, it's kind of like like a little splinter that finally comes to the surface. I just love that moment. I say, yeah, but you need to be to go to heaven. God's eyes are too pure to look on evil. He cannot tolerate wrong. He's not going to be with anything imperfect. And so if you and me are imperfect, we can't go to heaven. And if they come to that point, it's kind of like a scary, heavy moment where they say, well, I'm not perfect, neither you, nobody is. Are you saying nobody's going to go to heaven? Well, it gets you to um, the first key question, which we'll get to in a minute. But because we are rebellious against God's laws, we are under judgment by God the judge. God the creator, created by God the creator, rebellious against God the king, and therefore under judgment by God the judge. Matthew 12:36 is worth everything for you to memorize it. Matthew 12:36, very, very strong verse. But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. Why is that such an, a, a, a powerful verse for witnessing? Yeah. Because everyone knows that careless words. yeah. Um, do you have to give an account for careful words spoken? <laughs> I talked to my kids about this this morning. Remember, Jenny? Uh, we're saying, all right, it's like saying you have to give an account for every penny that you've spent. Yeah, but do I have to give an account for $100 bills? You know, I'm free, I'm free of that, aren't I? Well, no. The, the, I, I, if you have to give an account for every penny, then you have to give an account for everything right? That's why it's such a powerful verse. If you have to give an account for every careless word you've spoken, how about the big nasty things that you feel really guilty about, those things that you've done? How about everything? You're going to stand to give an account for everything you've done in your life. And that's a scary thing, isn't it? Do you want these people to be scared about judgment day? I actually think if they're not scared about judgment day, if they're unbelievers and they're not scared about judgment day, I don't think you've done your job as an evangelist. Now, there's a way to do it um, that's not holier than thou or like you're separated from it, say this is all of us if Jesus hadn't come. So now we're ready for this very poignant question. How can a sinful person like you and me, how can we, uh, enter heaven where God allows no sin? So we get point three to Christ. God, man, Christ. Uh, Here we get Christ, Christ gives us God's fourth title, Savior. Thank God for that fourth title. We have Creator, we have king we have judge and now we have his fourth title savior christ is savior isaiah 33:22. i love this verse for the lord is our judge the lord is our lawgiver the lord is our king it is he who will save us do you see all four titles there that's a that's a great one <laughs> it's not every day you can find a verse that covers everything but there it is isaiah 33 22 has everything that god is for us saved from what well we spent the first part of the lecture tonight going through that Saved from sin matthew 121 You will give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Then we talk about Jesus' supernatural life. I'm just going to give you an overview now and not go through the verses. We'll go through them, God willing, next time. Jesus' supernatural life. You want to talk about Jesus' supernatural life, his substitutionary death, his saving resurrection, and his salvation gifts. Why do you want to talk about his life? Why go into details about Jesus' biography? Is that important? Why is it important? His righteousness is imputed to us. Okay. Very good. Why else do we want to talk about Jesus' miracles, some things he did? Just spend some time on Jesus. As, as, as yeah. His historical life. Does his historical life mean anything? Does it matter? Yes, it matters. Yeah. Let me tell you the verse that's behind my thinking and why you want to talk for a while about Jesus' life. How can they call on the one they have not believed in and how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? They've got to hear about Jesus. And you are there to tell them about Jesus. Don't assume they know anything about Jesus. Tell them that Jesus was virgin born. Tell them that he lived a sinless life. Tell them that he did miracles. Tell them some things about Jesus. Spend some time on it. There's no point in going to the sinner's prayer if they don't know about Jesus. <laughs> okay? So we'll talk about that. Jesus fourth title person. The fourth, title, uh, the fourth sec- section is response. And there are some sections here. We'll talk about what must I do to be saved. Well, we talk about what you must do there are two things you must do. They're really two sides of the same coin. You have to repent and believe. Repent and believe. you got to repent. you got to believe. got to do both. Uh, Mark 1.15 says, repent and believe the good news. got to repent. What you must not do, you must not work for it. You must not wait for tomorrow. Uh, we'll talk about more things in this outline next time. God, man, Christ, response. God, the creator, king, judge. Rebe- we're created by God, the creator, rebellious, uh, against God the king. We're under judgment by God the judge. Uh, fourth title of God is is Christ as Savior. We talk about Christ's life. Uh, substitutionary death is resurrection. We talk about what he offers us. And then you call them to repentance and faith. That's a gospel outline. All right. If you want to memorize other verses to go in there, I, uh, it's all right, but this is a good, a good outline. All right. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the time we've had tonight to talk about this gospel outline, to talk about what salvation accomplishes. Lord, I want to thank you for Sunday, in which we had, we had a good number of, of, of guests, uh, people that are still thinking about coming to Christ, who hadn't come to Christ yet in church on Sunday. Lord, I thank you for that. Lord, I pray that you would extend our reach. God, make us bold. Help us to share the gospel with people that we meet this week, uh, with people that, that we know have, we've never shared with, people at work, relatives, Lord. Help us to be faithful in this gospel ministry. Lord, help us not to make excuses saying, I don't know what to say, Lord. Lord, we know what to say. We know what the gospel is. Help us to share it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org.